Today is uh, January 11th, 2009, and uh, we are looking at Galatians, uh, study on Galatians, uh, grafted in, uh, lesson 9, which is a focus on chapter 3. Uh, let's begin with uh, prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and safeguard you. May the Lord illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. We're going to uh, look at uh, Lesson 9. Uh, the Chapter uh, 3 of Galatians is quite long, uh, so uh, I trust you'll be... Uh, patient as we uh, go through the preliminary steps of establishing the foundation, the, uh, the necessary vocabulary, and then we'll spend some time actually going through uh, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse by verse. In Romans chapter 2, verse 12 through 16, Paul writes, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, although they have not the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Messiah Yeshua, according to my gospel. And then in Psalms 130, verses 3 through 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. Here's some questions that we have for our study before we get into chapter 3. If I'm not saved or joined to Israel by the works of the law, isn't the law annulled then? Why does Paul tell us in Romans 3.31 that we establish the law through faith, and yet in Galatians he seems to contrast the works of the law with faith? Why does he mean, what does he mean by the works of the law? And what law is Paul talking about in Galatians 3? You may have had other questions, and may, we may all have additional questions uh, uh, after we finish today, uh, it's not bad to have questions. Having settled theology is not something that uh, uh, we should pride ourselves in. Uh, on the contrary, uh, having settled theology oftentimes can blind us to the very words of Scripture. We need to be very careful in the handling of Scripture that we allow Scripture to speak for itself and not read our own uh, theologies or systems into it. Uh, that is true for all of us. None of us are exempt from reading uh, Scripture with our own peculiar bias, and we need to be careful. And, and uh, we pray that the Lord will, in fact, uh, um, bless us as we study his word, that we may not see things simply from our perspective. Uh, if you remember from last, uh, the last lesson, uh, we looked uh, particularly at uh, lesson, um, in lesson 
8 of Galatians, which is a focus on chapter 3 of the book, uh, we saw that Paul uses the words righteousness and justify or justified uh, in the book of Galatians, not so much in a sociological sense or that having to do with salvation, but to convey uh, his point that there was a faulty premise being, being propagated by those who were influencing uh, the Galatians uh, that they needed to go through ritual conversion. Uh, the false premise was that in order to join the covenant community, and that is to be justified, that's what we looked at the word, the usage of the word in Galatians indicates that's what it's talking about, where God would see them as members of the covenant community, uh, that it was a faulty premise that they could in fact be considered by God to be a part of the covenant community through by going through ritual conversion. Uh, it seems far-fetched for us maybe in this day and age to consider that even as a possibility that one could be thought that if they went through some ritual, that that ritual in and of itself would establish a right relationship with God. Uh, but remember, we're not reading these things. Uh, uh, these things were not written to people of a 20th, uh, 21st century mind. These things were written particularly to those in the first century, and we are to understand them uh, from the first century context and then apply them to our 21st century lives. Uh, that's a very important distinction as we read scripture. It must speak in the context or uh, through the language of men. Otherwise, God, uh, God might, as well, might as well, uh, write it in, in gibberish and, and we would be on our own to try and discover what it means. Uh, God means to be understood, but he means to be understood in a consistent context from the beginning to the end. Uh, not something that changes with the, with the, uh, with the ethics of men and the, and the changes of culture. We also saw that uh, these references to, to words like righteousness are also speaking of demonstrable righteousness. That is, good deeds. In fact, most of the apostolic scriptures reference to the word righteous or righteousness is actually referring to doing something. Uh, that, is not to, that is not at all to uh, imply that imputed righteousness, uh, that is something that is given to us on, on the basis of faith in Messiah, uh, specifically, that that is, uh, that that is negated. Uh, it certainly is not. But uh, God expects his people to behave in a righteous way. And uh, what, we, what we see in Paul's use of words, particularly in Galatians, as Peter has uh, told us and we looked at, uh, we need to be very careful in handling Paul because he says some things that are hard to understand. Uh, for most Christian theologians, classical Christian theologians, they have no difficulty at all understanding Paul because they come from a paradigm where they have read into Paul, they have created a theology based upon their understanding of Paul, and from that they have created a new religion, and the new religion, as they call it, Christianity, has no has no context and has no, uh, has no need uh, for Israel, the people of Israel, the land of Israel, and neither does it have an understanding of the God of Israel. Uh, if they would divorce themselves, if they have divorced themselves from the people and, uh, and the land uh, and the Messiah of Israel, then uh, they have no uh, reference to the God of the Bible. And uh, this is the difficulty in 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 reading our own theology into Paul. Paul uses uh, words that at sometimes, if you read them as theological, in a theological context, for instance, classical Christian theology, some things he says actually contradicts each other. Uh, even his usage of the word law, or namas, uh, is read inconsistently. If you, don't, uh, if you don't try and place it in the culture, in the context from, by which uh, Paul was writing from and to. 
Uh, go to uh, a perfect example is found in Galatians chapter three, uh, verse twelve. In Galatians three twelve, Paul says, "The law is not of faith, but the man who does them." who will live by them. By the way, he's quoting from Deuteronomy there. When he quotes from Deuteronomy, the man who does them will live by them. That is not a negative statement. That's a very positive statement. In other words, there's life in the fulfilling or the doing of the commandments. But here Paul says, the law is not a faith, but the man who does them will live by them. And then in Romans 3.31, he says, do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So in Romans, he says, the law is established through faith, and yet in Galatians he says the law is not of faith. Now, the two cannot be true if we understand the word law, namas in the Greek, to always refer to Torah or the commandments of God. Uh, what we need to understand is what exactly is Paul saying when he uses this word, and can we discover it from the context? And as we've seen in past studies, in past lessons, that, uh, in fact, Paul uses the word uh, sometimes for principles, uh, sometimes for um, uh, uh, concepts uh, or, or uh, institutes. Sometimes he means it for the Torah, the commandments of God. At other times, he actually uses it as a reference to the commandments of men. Now, he's not exclusive, and we would have to say that Paul's use of the word namas is almost always refers to the commandments of God found within the first five books books of the Bible, particularly uh, the Torah uh, uh, written uh, through uh, the prophet Moses. Uh, but Paul uses a word in Galatians chapter 3, or free, excuse me, a phrase that we promised we'd look at because he does it in chapter 2 as well, works of the law. Go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, and we'll read the first part of Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. This is the key verse for all of Galatians. Chapter, uh, Galatians 2, 15 through 16 are the key verses for all of the book. And Paul makes his main point there, and then he establishes, and he reiterates, and he clarifies from then on. So 2, 15 and 16 are the main point he's making. In 2.16, the first part, he says, Yet knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in, in Yeshua, the Messiah. So he's saying, man is not justified by the works of the law. Remember in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, We Jews of the flesh, we know that man is not justified by the works of the law. Well, uh, this, this uh, of course, most people don't read that context. They simply say, you see, you can't be justified by the works of the law. You can't find right standing by the works of the law. Uh, well, first of all, the Torah was not given to find right standing. So, uh, um, so it's, a, it's a point being argued that is moot. Uh, but in addition to that, it's not denigrating the Torah in any way. And that's what we want to look at today. How can it be possible that it would be? Uh, and we, as we saw last week, it's impossible. Uh, the works of the law, the phrase, is used eight times in the apostolic scriptures. Paul uses is the only one that uses it. None of the other writers use this phrase. He uses it two times in Romans, and he uses it six times in this book of Galatians. The phrase, the Greek phrase, is ergon uh, nomu. And, and here, it, uh, it, which means works of the law, it's not found at all in the Septuagint. Uh, it's not found uh, in extant... Uh, Greek texts uh, that we might, uh, classical Greek or whatever, uh, Greek uh, uh, poetry, uh, mythology, it's just not something used. Paul is seems to be uh, making this phrase up or referring to this phrase in a way that's not found anywhere else, or at least that's what so many people think. And we need to discover, Paul uses this phrase and he uses it the same way each time that he uses it. He uses this phrase, it's spelled the same, it's, uh, it's, it's grammar is the same each time he uses it. So what does it mean? Um, 
as we saw, namas doesn't always mean uh, Torah. Uh, in fact, uh, even the word uh, Torah doesn't always mean uh, refer to the commandments of God. And an example that I gave you in the workbook was from the Mishnah in Sanhedrin 11, 2, and 3. And here, here's to quote from the Mishnah. It says, in the chamber of hewn stone, and that's that the chamber of hewn stone was below the temple uh, proper uh, um, in the second temple period. Uh, it was a hewn stone, and it was, and it was where, uh, for most of the second temple period, uh, where the Sanhedrin met. We know that later on in the, in the second temple, particularly in the first century, in the time before the first century under, under Herod the Great and after, uh, that they did not meet in the chamber of hewn stone. Uh, but it was, the, it was the place where the Sanhedrin met. In the chamber of hewn stone, whence the law goes forth to all Israel, it is, for it is written, from that place where Hashem shall choose. Uh, and then it, later on, greater stringency applies to the observance of the words of the scribes than the observance of the written law. Uh, understanding this, that they're saying that the oral law, that is the things that, that we, rulings that come out of the Sanhedrin, are in fact superior, or not superior, but of greater stringency. In other words, they, they go a level deeper. Uh, that's consistent with the idea, Perkevot says, one of the, one of the uh, sayings of the fathers says, or the sages in the, in the time before the first century says, that put a fence around the Torah. Put a fence around the Torah means to uh, uh, create rules that would keep people from breaking the actual commandments of God. Uh, this is not all completely bad and not completely wrong, as we're going to see, uh, as we and as we have seen, that at times Yeshua does the same thing. He, uh, he places fen- fences around the commandments of God. The question becomes not whether fences should be placed, but whether those observance of those fences is the equivalent to observance of the law, the Torah, the commandments of God. And here in Sanhedrin, and the Mishnah in Sanhedrin 11.2, we see that they're saying that, that uh, it actually make an allusion to Isaiah chapter 2, the going forth of the law for all Israel, uh, m- making this allusion that, that this is the Torah going forth. Uh, and it's not. It's not the Torah uh, that God spoke uh, through his servant Moses at uh, Sinai, uh, this is uh, uh, this is man's uh, man's attempts to protect us from breaking those commandments. And at times we have seen, as Yeshua tells us in Matthew chapter 15 and other places, where where those very rulings from from men actually undid the commandments of God uh, to their detriment. They were they were uh, moving instead of protecting. Uh, the commandments of God and the people from breaking them, some of the commandments imposed by man were actually negating and uh, uh, obscuring the very commandments of God, which is an obscuration of uh, the very righteousness of God. So we, so we know that this uh, word namas, uh, and as even Paul would have used the word Torah, do not always relate to uh, the first five books or the commandments of God. Um, and Dr. Dr. James Dunn, uh, in his, uh, and I, I've referenced this uh, his book, The Epistle to the Galatians, uh, several times, both in the workbook and in our in our uh, online discussions. Uh, who, who is a he is a classical Christian uh, theologian and scholar. He does not he is not messianic or or uh, even remotely so. However, he does he, he is he is faithful in trying to uh, take the words uh, uh, of this book and try and and put them back in the first century context and uh, bringing in outside uh, references which can help us understand the vocabulary at use. Here's what I'm going to, I'm going to quote this from page 135 of his book, Epistle to the Galatians. 
this, and he's talking about the phrase, the works of the law, this has traditionally been understood as a denial that human beings, even the most religious of individuals, can achieve salvation by their own works. They cannot work their passage to heaven. They cannot earn salvation by their own efforts. Valid as that theological insight of tremendous, is of tremendous importance, it is doubtful whether it quite catches Paul's meaning here. Paul was evidently objecting to a current Jewish conviction. But so far as we can tell, the typical and traditional Jewish view of the time was not, was not that anyone could earn God's favor. On the contrary, the whole of Israel's religion was founded on the axiom that God had chosen Israel as an act wholly undeserved. Membership of the covenant people already presupposed God's gracious election and sustaining favor. It did not have to be earned. Nor does the phrase itself denote human deeds of, materi- of uh, meritorious quality. What then was Paul denying? What did he mean by saying that, quote, the works of the law, end quote, provide no ground for justification? The point is obviously of central importance to Paul's argument, since he states it no less than three times in this one verse. He's talking about 2.16. It is equally central to the summary statement of Romans 3.20. The phrase itself, works of the law, means most naturally deeds or actions which the law requires. It has no immediate parallel in the Old Testament, but in typical Jewish understanding, the law had been given as a part of God's covenant to show covenant members how to live within the covenant and to enable them to do so. We need only mention, uh, we need mention only Deuteronomy. So most Jews, again, most naturally, understood the phrase to mean the obligations laid upon Israelites by virtue of their membership of Israel. However, continuing, however, as we have already noted, Second Temple Judaism was split into various factions, each claiming to have a proper understanding of the law and of its obligations. And let me stop quoting here uh, for a moment. This is what we're talking about, putting a fence around the Torah. Different sects within Judaism, Second Temple Judaism, had different, had different fences. Now, a perfect example is the Qumran community. If we identify them with the Essenes, as modern uh, scholars like to, we would recognize that they had different covenant standards or, or entry standards or identification standards, which they were called which were their fences around the commandments of God, and they could identify themselves by those. Uh, we see this uh, time and again in modern uh, in modern religious circles. We see we see that um, there are the unwritten rules of, ins- of the inside group. Uh, there's greater Christianity. Uh, but within, uh, for instance, uh, within a Baptist church, you would have the people that attend uh, nominally or uh, at times, occasionally they'll show up. They are nominally members. They, they, they aren't, they aren't in, in, the, in the truest sense, they're not recognized as a core group. The core group shows up on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday. They are, uh, they are participants, in, uh, they're deacons, they're their uh, their participants, their Sunday school teachers, whatever else. Uh, wh- where does it ever say that the core group will behave in that way, or that the the true members will behave in that way? No one ever writes those things down. Uh, those are unwritten. Where does it say that the core group uh, will not drink alcohol, whereas others might? Uh, certainly, some Baptists uh, would do that, but the point is that most don't. And yet, there is this unspoken rule. This unspoken rule, an 
oral rule, uh, or rather one of example. In other words, uh, we just know. It's something you know deep down. You know, you know the difference between those who are in and those who are just at the fringe. This is the way we're talking about. Now continuing, now, continuing the quote, let me go back up. Uh, however, as we have already noted, Second Temple Judaism was split into factions, various factions, each claimed to have a proper understanding of the law and its obligation. Works of the law, quote, then would probably reflect this factionalism and the common concern within Second Temple Judaism to draw the lines of demarcation around covenant righteousness as clearly as possible. This is confirmed by what is a close parallel to the phrase within the most prominent of these factions, the Essene community at Qumran. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was precisely the covenanter's deeds of the law which had been tested in order to check whether his membership of the community could be sustained. And he gives a reference here to the Qumran scrolls. The implication uh, is that only at Qumran were the, quote, works of the law able to properly form the Qumran document known as some of the deeds of the law is, is uh, referenced. And here's what, what Dr. Dunn is talking about. He's, he's saying that this phrase that Paul's using, the works of the law, or in Greek, ergon nomu, he's, making, he's saying that this very phrase, a variation of this very phrase, is used not in the Septuagint, not in the apostolic writings, uh, other uh, apostolic scriptures, but here in the Essene writings, there's something very, very similar. In other words, it's a sect-based phrase. It's a phrase that defines a sect or a division, or a, uh, a line of demarcation that they say whether you're in our group or not. And if you're not a part of our group, then you have no part in the world to come, as the Essenes would have said. There are others within, within Judaism in Second temple, temple period saying the same thing. Paul's addressing that very issue. Saying, they're, saying, they're saying you're not really a part of our religion unless you go through ritual conversion. Uh, to the Gentiles, who are, be, who are trained by observant Jews who had been introduced to the Messiah of Israel by observant Jews to say that they were not a part of Israel was, uh, in Paul's mind, absurd. And he was telling them, listen, the lines of demarcation are not drawn by those communities. The lines of demarcation are drawn by God. And he says the works of the law, then, is, are, are those other lines of demarcation. In this case, we're talking about ritual conversion, or also known as circumcision, uh, which doesn't relate to the commandment of circumcision, but rather the ritual that was defined uh, sometime after the 3rd century BCE. So we see the Dead Sea Scrolls actually reveal this phrase, the works of the law, as pertaining to requirements of the sect, not the requirements of God. And, and it's, uh, uh, actually, let me go back to Dr. Dunn again on page 136, because he, he talks a little bit more about this. In other words, at Qumran, works of the law denoted a sectarian understanding of the law, denoted, indeed, the sect's distinctive understanding and practice of, its, of the law. The, that understanding, the practice of the law, which marked it out for others, including other Jews. Let me pause for a moment. One of the things that marked the Qumran community was they were called the people of the spade. Uh, they took the, they took the uh, instructions regarding the bearing of, of, uh, of waste, human waste, uh, to the point where rather than making it apply to when you're in the camp uh, and, or when you're at war, rather they applied it all the time. And so anytime they would have to uh, relieve themselves, they would take their spade, they'd go out in the, in the, in the, 
in the wilderness and, and uh, relieve themselves and then bury it rather than having uh, uh, other facilities that might accommodate it. So that is a perfect thing that was distinctive of that sect. And that distinctiveness of that sect uh, then is what they would call, what they called the deeds of the law and what Paul is referring to in the works of the law, a, dis- a sectarian distinctiveness. Let me continue quoting from Dr. Dunn. Works of the law there was probably used initially as a polemic context to denote particularly those obligations of the law which were reckoned especially crucial in the maintenance of covenant righteousness, in the maintenance of an individual's Jew status within the covenant. And what he's saying here is that those things that are the really inside group, like I talked about the, the, the Baptist example, the real inside group, they're the ones that always show up on Wednesday for prayer meeting. That's how you know the people who are really in. We would never say that. But those are the works of the law. That's the defining, the demarcation of the really inside group. Uh, we've seen other times that where, we, where we talk about uh, um, uh, various sects of, uh, uh, within Protestantism. Uh, uh, for instance, various sects. We don't dance. We don't, we don't chew. We don't go with girls who do. Uh, those things, uh, where would you ever find that in the Bible? And they have never admitted to finding it in the Bible. But, uh, of course, they saw it as an extension. A fence around what they saw were the necessary, uh, the necessary things that identified the people of God. Uh, it's usually the fences that are called the works of the law. It's those fences that define or closely define who, a group, who is in the group and who is not in the group. And this is a matter of sociological uh, fact, but it's also a matter that Paul is addressing here. And, and in this case, he's using it as, as a means of, of, uh, sh- of showing them that it's not up to one sect or another who's in and who's out. It's rather up to God. And that's his point in Galatians chapter 2 and continuing in chapter 3. So, we, we understand this works of the law, this phrase that Paul uses, fits very well with the overall thrust of Paul's message in Galatians. And that is that Gentiles cannot enter the covenant community uh, by ritual conversion. You don't get to be, if you're a Gentile, you don't get to be a part in the world to come by becoming a Jew. And that's his point. The only hope for a Gentile, the only hope for anyone, is through the work of Messiah, being joined to God through the covenant and the covenant people of God. And we know that that can only be by grace alone. And I gave you a bunch of uh, uh, several scriptures to look up to, to, to remind us of the importance of this. The first was in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 through 7. Exodus 34 describes uh, what in Judaism is called the 13 attributes of God. God reveals his name, his names here in this book, in, uh, in Exodus chapter 34. He reveals it to uh, Moses after the sin of the golden calf and Moses ascends the mountain. And uh, God wants to preserve a remnant through Moses. And Moses pleads with God. And God reveals to him his character, and these 13 attributes, as beautiful and wonderful as it is. He says in verse 6, and read through verse 7 of Exodus 34, And the Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, 
long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children, to the third or fourth generation. Here he is known as God, the merciful. Uh, man cannot earn his way into God's favor. Uh, otherwise, we would be in no need of mercy. God, man cannot find a way to have his sins expunged. Otherwise, we would not need of God who defines himself as one who forgives iniquity and transgression. Man would not need to fear a holy God if God was not a God who by no means clears the guilty, but that visits the iniquity upon the fathers and the children under the third and fourth generation. Now, there's no hope outside of God's provision and His grace. There's no hope for man. Job chapter 9 verse 2 says, Surely I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If you're going to stand before God, will you stand as righteous? Job says, how is it possible? Job 25.40 says, how then can a man be righteous before God? Or how can the pure who is born of a woman? If you're born... Uh, if you are born in the way that people are born, if you're a human being, you can't be righteous before God, is what he's saying. Uh, Psalms 30, 130, verse 3 through 4. Psalms 130, verse 3 through 4. But if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Notice that God is not a permissive parent in this passage. There's forgiveness, but it's so that he may be feared. This is what he says in Exodus 34, verse 7. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity and the fathers upon the children, and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. What hope do we have? It's not that God simply says, well, never mind. I didn't really mean it. Never mind. It's not really that important. I'll just say that you did never do it. God doesn't do that. And Exodus 34 tells us that. And here in Psalms 130, it tells us that. There's forgiveness that you may be feared. God has to satisfy our iniquity. He has to satisfy the penalty for our sin, which He does. And He does only through Messiah, as revealed in the very words given through the prophet Moses. Psalm 143, verse 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. David is calling out, asking God, don't enter into judgment with me. If I were to stand before you, I'd have no right. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Interesting here, he says, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. Well, and how is he called righteous? <laughs> um, we're going to look a little bit deeply at that. But uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Let me pause for a moment. What's... What's witnessed by the law of the prophets? The righteousness of God. In other words, the righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, it says the righteousness of God is up, revealed apart from, the, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, 
people forget to read the second part of the verse. Uh, even the righteousness of God, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption through the redemption that is in Messiah Yeshua, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Yeshua. God declared from the beginning what was right and what was wrong. And God had to... Uh, bring both punishment and a satisfying of, of uh, and a covering for sin in order to be righteous because he had passed over the sins of those that were previously committed. When the Torah came, when the law was given, uh, now everyone was uh, condemned, but what about those who had, who preceded? Well, he does that. He demonstrates his justness by providing a method, a way for those uh, both previously and uh, afterwards, to be justified. He is the justifier. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through God, through our Lord Messiah Yeshua. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And there the word is actually, if you took this into the Hebrew, it is to be a sin offering for us. Uh, to be a sin offering for us is, is, is what he's saying. Uh, for he who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, that we might become the righteousness of God. As we see, here we're talking about an imputed righteousness, a forensic righteousness, one that is, has legal standing. If we are to stand before God with our own righteousness, we have no legal standing. Does that mean that we lack a righteousness as we saw last week? No, of course not. Those who have been called, he has in fact enabled to walk righteously. Does it mean we're perfect? No, it doesn't. Righteousness doesn't mean you're perfect. Righteousness means, righteousness means that you do the right thing. With regard to God's righteousness, it means that he always does the right thing. And as the righteousness of God has been imputed to us, those of us, who have placed our faith in his provision for uh, righteousness, and that is Messiah Yeshua. Paul uses a phrase in, in, uh, in, uh, um, in Galatians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 11, the just shall live by faith. And, he, and in doing that, he, he, he wants us to go back into Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. To go back into Habakkuk 2.4, and it, it, three times in the Apostolic Scriptures, this, this verse is quoted. Habakkuk 2.4, I believe, is the key passage of all Scripture. And uh, Habakkuk 2.4 reads, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. <clears throat> or, let me, let, me, let, me, let me give you what the Hebrew says there, the just shall live by faith. And then you can maybe have a little bit better understanding of what the English and some English translations actually convey. It's vetzadik emunato That is, it says the right and the righteous in faith. Actually, it says in their faith will live. The righteous and the righteous in their faith will live. 
And uh, when we get to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, we're given the context of Paul quoting that in Romans chapter uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, the, the... Paul quotes, Paul does not quote the Septuagint. The Septuagint reads almost the same as the Hebrew, and the righteous in their faith will live. That is very, very similar to the way the Septuagint Greek translates that. Paul paraphrases. In the two places that Paul uses this phrase, and the writer of the Hebrews also uses this phrase, they use it the same way. They, they paraphrase it the same way. However, it is not a quote from the Septuagint. They're certainly alluding to the Septuagint. They're alluding to, uh, or, or, alluding to the passage, Habakkuk 2.4, but they're not quoting it. And here's what Paul says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, for it is the power of God uh, to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, but remember, we're, if we want to take the scripture that's quoting uh, or alluding to the scripture, we go back to the original uh, scripture. And it, is, and it says, And the righteous in their faith will live. And then Paul continues in verse 18, uh, For the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What's this context? He's con- contrasting, contrasting the righteous and the unrighteous. And who are the righteous? The righteous live by their faith. They live because they live in their faith. In their faith, they live. And then in Galatians 3.1, he uses this phrase again. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. In other words, it's obvious. Uh, this is not new thing, a new thing that he's teaching them. By the way, you've always thought, you know, I'm sorry when you were... A, when you were being influenced by all those uh, Judaizers, they, they told you this. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, no, one, no one thought this, that man were, were justified by the law. Uh, uh, what, what he was alluding to was, you can't come into the covenant community through ritual conversion. That's what he's talking about. But here, here he says, but no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, declares the righteous and are declared righteous. So what was in the just shall live by faith? Again, and the righteous in their faith live. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 through 39, in context reading the same phrase, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that, you, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe in the saving of the soul. Again, the writer of the the epistle to Hebrews is drawing a contrast between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous, those who do not draw back and those who draw back. And how is it that those who do not draw back, that that their faith is what they live in? It's, it's It's the basis for their life. And we see that carried out in, the, in, the, in these three quotes of this phrase, the just shall live by faith. We see that, in fact, uh, uh, 
the writers, uh, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are taking us back to this phrase in, in Habakkuk, this verse in Habakkuk, the righteous will live by his faith. Uh, it's not, it's not, um, well, let's continue. Uh, what, what I'd like to do now is, is go back to uh, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. And with the background that we have had in the workbook, uh, in your reading and in your study, and with the background that we have had as we, uh, as we uh, reiterated those things, let's read uh, Galatians chapter 3, which is a very long chapter, and try and, and, and uh, draw from the, this chapter within the context what Paul uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was trying to say. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to, uh, this week I'm going to read from the Hebrews Names Version, uh, which is actually found in the appendix of the workbook. Verse 1. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you not to obey the truth, before whose eyes Yeshua the Messiah was openly set forth among you as crucified? I just want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having, been, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now completed in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if it is indeed in vain? He therefore who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? even as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now what he's talking about here, again, works of the law. Those sectarian, unique sectarian things. Those things that set you apart. Remember, the influencing people that were coming and saying, you need to go through these Gentiles. Well, it's all fine and well that you believe in Messiah. That's great. But if you really want to be part of Israel, you haven't, you haven't come all the way yet. Uh, it's great that you believe in the Messiah of Israel, but you need to come all the way, and you need to go into ritual conversion, you need to become Jews. That will satisfy the whole thing. Then you will be a part of Israel. Uh, and that's what they were telling them. And uh, Paul's saying here, is this, he's saying, you've already received the proof that you've been considered a part of the covenant people. You've already received the proof. Uh, was it, did you receive the Holy Spirit this way? Were there miracles among you this way? No. You already have the proof the proof didn't come because you went through ritual conversion, which you haven't done yet. You already have what you've been looking for. Remember, he's talking about ritual conversion. He's not talking about the biblical commandments that include biblical circumcision. Why were they looking for man's approval? Why were they looking for other groups within Judaism to say, it's okay, you're part of us? Well, obviously, there are some very difficulties. The fact that they weren't a part of it, it would have been a whole lot easier if they just did. But what would they be doing if they did? If they just said, listen, you know, we can finally work in all of the synagogue, not just amongst those who are followers of Yeshua, but those who are not followers of Yeshua, will be accepted by everyone. No one's going to wonder after they shook our hands, oh no, or whether they won't even not shake our hands, if I put it in modern terms. Well, they don't even want to eat with us. Look, we can just settle the whole thing. If we'll just go through ritual conversion, it doesn't mean anything. We'll just do it. Just to, just to satisfy the issue, so that then it will be like, okay, taken care of. So when someone comes up and says, well, what do you believe? Or go, well, I'm, I'm Jewish. And everybody goes, oh, I know what that means. Apply that to modern times. I mean, does this not apply to us today? Those of us who are find ourselves in Messianic Judaism, time and time again, people say, well, what do you believe? Well, oftentimes we don't say, well, it's not a matter of believing. 
You know, I follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, I follow the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua. Uh, but you begin to describe the things that you that you that you hold to be important in your life, and and uh, uh, immediately it's like, well, that's all fine and well. So you're a Christian. Well, you know, some of us may describe ourselves as Christians, and that's all fine and well, and I'm not trying to negate that. But the point is, uh, if someone, if you continue to describe, if you find yourself in Messianic Judaism, you continue to describe your lifestyle, pretty soon somebody goes, well, you're Jewish. Are you Jewish? And then, and then we have the uncomfortable nature of saying, well, no, I'm not Jewish. Well, my grandmother was Jewish, or, or my father was Jewish. We're finding excuses for something that we don't need an excuse for. We're trying to find a way to fit in. When we've already been told, you're a part. Why is it? Now, we could always just go back and say, for those of us that are, well, we're Gentile. And, you know, I have, you know, I have no part of Israel. I'm, I'm just a Gentile. You know, and it's not wrong to say you're a Gentile either. But the point here is that, that uh, um, we could abandon the premise that we are grafted into the olive tree. But if we do, as we're going to see, uh, we have no part in the salvation that is given only through Israel, and the Messiah of Israel, and the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's continue to read verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Know therefore that those who are of faith, the same are children of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the good news beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with the faithful Abraham. In the Mishnah and the Talmud, there's always a debate about who really is a child of Abraham. And it goes kind of back and forth. Generally, obviously, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But whether other people could be included. One of the points is that ritual conversion, one of the points of ritual conversion being offered to these Gentiles, these Gentiles in Galatia was that a proselyte can finally say, my father Abraham. In the prayers, you actually can call him Father Abraham. Uh, for instance, in the Shimon Esrei, what's known as the Amidah, the standing prayer, says, we, we bless God that he is the God of our forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Well, can you pray that? Well, there's a debate. And there, in fact, there's even a debate, unfortunately, that even proselytes, those who had gone through ritual conversion, whether they could still pray that. Generally, it's held that those who had gone through ritual conversion could pray that, that they could call him Father Abraham. What's Paul saying here? Those who are of faith are the same as the children of Abraham. You are a descendant of Abraham. And he goes back and he draws this, this promise given to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis. And you all, the nations, will be blessed. He's talking about the fact that Gentiles will be, will be attached to the promises of Abraham, to the God of Israel, through the promises of Abraham. Do you see why it's so important for Paul here to make this point? If everybody was to go through ritual conversion and become Jewish, then the promises given to Abraham were not fulfilled. Set aside the fact that you can't become Jewish. Paul does, say, does argue that. But even if it were possible that ritual conversion could technically make you Jewish, even if that were possible, Paul would still have been opposed to it. Because you're going about it wrong, and that negates the very promises made to Abraham, because the nations were to be justified. The nations were to be, were to be, uh, were to be um, blessed 
added to the covenant community. The Gentiles would be added to the covenant community because of the promises made to God, made to Abraham, that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and in Genesis chapter 15, and throughout the scriptures. Those promises would be nothing. The prophets speak of the nations coming to Israel. That would mean nothing if everybody that just everybody just went through ritual conversion and became Jewish, even if it were possible. Paul would be against it. Continuing in verse uh, three, verse verse ten, uh, chapter three, verse ten. For as many as are the wor- are the works of the law, there is using that phrase again, are under a curse. Let me pause for a moment. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Why is he saying that? Why would he say you're under curse if you're under the works of the law? In other words, if, if you follow through with man's remedy for the problem of how you get into the covenant community, how you become attached to the God of Israel, if we use man's way, he's saying you're under curse. Let's continue reading. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the scroll of the Torah to do them. Let me pause again. What is it that was required of those who went through ritual conversion? A promise to keep the written and the oral Torah. That was the first step, to keep the written and the oral Torah. That's part of this issue he's, he's dealing with here. Continuing verse 3, verse 11. Now that a man is justified by the law, but now that no man is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not a faith, but the man who does them will live by them. Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law, having made, become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Messiah Yeshua, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brothers, speaking of human terms, though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been confirmed, no one makes it voids or adds to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seeds. He does not say to seeds, but of, as of many but as of one, to seed, which is Messiah. First of all, uh, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 12, and actually it is in the plural, it is seeds. He's making an interpretation of Midrash. Paul is making a Midrash. It's speaking of Messiah. We recognize it speaks of Messiah, but it also speaks of his descendants. If, if we were, are to cut off the physical descendants of Abraham, then we have no Messiah either. The physical descendants of Abraham are still the recipients of the covenant promises made to their father Abraham. And anyone who says differently has no understanding of the scriptures or the God of scriptures. He keeps his promises always, every time, without exception. He always keeps his promises. He promised and he will fulfill it. But he also says the blessing given to Abraham is also being given to the Gentiles and that is through what he's alluding to in this Midrash. Saying through Messiah Yeshua the Gentiles also are grafted in. Made a part. You know the problem is that uh, we are talking about how you enter the covenant community and most people reading this are all concerned about well you can't get into the covenant community through through the law. You can't add to the, to the way that, that God has grafted us in. And to that we say absolutely true. We agree completely. Paul agrees completely. Everyone of faith agrees completely. The problem is that that's not always what's being discussed. What they're not talking about following, uh, following the law to enter the covenant community. They're talking about following a, a list of commandments of men to enter the covenant community. You can't enter the covenant community unless you become Jewish. And the only way to do that, they said, was through ritual conversion. Paul's saying you don't need to be Jewish to have a part in the world to come.
all Israel has a part in the world to come. That's true. But who is Israel? Is it only the descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob? Certainly they are Israel. To deny their Israel is, is false and a lie. But what of those who come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by faith in the Messiah of Israel? Like Ruth, saying, Your God is my God. I'll go wherever you go. Let's continue in verse 17. Now I say this, a covenant confirmed beforehand by God in Messiah, the law, which came 430 years after, does not annul so as to make the promise of no effect. For it is the inheritance of the law. It is, not, it is no more of promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by promise. If inheritance comes from the law, it's not a promise. It was if you earn it, which is not what the law is about anyway, but that's what he's talking about. Listen, if you attach yourself to the people of Israel by going through ritual and conversion, you've, you've earned them inheritance. You've somehow done something to get it. Well, first of all, the natural born were never did anything to earn it. How foolish is that? The natural born know full well it's only by grace that they actually were born into the family of Israel. Now you become a part of the family of Israel by your own actions through following the, the, the rubics of, of, a, of a man-made decree. May it never be. That's not how you obtain the promise, the inheritance. Verses 17 through 18. Uh, it's interesting, he says, um, uh, uh, where, where he talks about uh, the law, which came 430 years later after, does not annul so as to make a promise of no effect. This is an important principle Paul uses and, and uh, classical Christian theology glosses right over and never gets. The, the covenants of God, the eternal covenants of the Almighty God made upon His name and, and sealed by His very Spirit, the covenants of the Almighty God are not linear or sequential. The Western mind is unable to see anything except in terms of linear or sequential. The covenants of God are circular and fully overlapping. God does not annul what he says and then comes up with something new. The inheritance didn't come from the law. It preceded the law. The inheritance comes from the promises made to Abraham. Reiterated through his son Isaac. Specifically mentioned again through his grandson, Jacob, and all the descendants of Israel are inheritors of that promise. And we who are not born of that genetic line only have a hope by, attacked, by being attached to that genetic line through the miraculous work of Messiah. That is the only hope. The law never would have replaced those promises. That's foolish. The promises were still in effect. The law did not bring them into the covenant. The Torah is not the means to access the covenant of God. The covenants of God are by grace and always grace. Trusting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only means into the covenant of God. The covenants of promise. The law didn't replace it. The law wasn't even meant to access it. The Torah, the commandments of God, 
simply define the righteousness of God and the behavior of those who follow Him. Particularly those who follow the Messiah. How sad it is that those who follow the Messiah, such a small portion of those who claim to follow the Messiah, actually keep the commandments that He did. How sad. How, how backwards. That they could dare to point the bony finger at the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and say, you are accursed when they're the ones so many are actually obeying God. Continuing verse 19 through 25. What then is the law? It was added because of transgressions into the seed, speaking of Messiah. The seed should come to whom the promise was, has been made. It was ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not between one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promise of the God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could make alive, most certainly righteousness would have been of the law. But the scriptures imprisoned all things under sin, that the promises, the promise of faith in Yeshua, the Messiah, might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were continually kept in custody under the law, confined for the faith which be afterward be revealed, so that the law has become our tutor to bring us to Messiah, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. This passage is probably the most misunderstood of this book. What's a tutor? The law is a tutor. Now that, I got, now that I have Messiah, I don't need a tutor anymore. Boy, I'm sure glad I don't have to keep that. That's absurd. That is an absurd thought. The word here is pedagogue. A pedagogue or pedagogue. A pedagogue, in English it's, it's translated as pedagogue. A pedagogue was not a teacher or a tutor. A pedagogue was someone who kept the child. The, 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 the father of the household would hire a, a young man to guard his child who took him to the teacher. He would guard it, protect him, so he wouldn't get beat up along the way. Once he got to the teacher, then he would be taught and they would return again. Uh, now that we've been brought to the teacher, to Messiah... Do we no longer need a guard? Uh, do we no longer need somebody to guard us? Well, here's the question. The way that this is all phrased, uh, he's saying, uh, as some would say, well, now that I've found Messiah, now that I know who Messiah is, I don't need him anymore. I don't need that what brought me to him. That's absurd. What brought him to him, us to him, identifies him as Messiah. We never would have known Messiah without the Torah. It would be impossible to know who the Messiah was without the Torah. He is defined by the Torah. It is the very definition of Messiah. The commandments of God reveal the righteousness of God. They reveal the righteousness of Messiah. Without the commandments of God, it is impossible to know Messiah. It is impossible to know who the Messiah is without the commandments of the Almighty. How is it possible once finding the Messiah, knowing who it is, we would turn our backs on the very thing that brought us to Him? That's absurd. No, instead, we should be pointing to it so that others could see the Messiah there as well. Do you understand that if you take what some people call the New Testament and you rip it out and separate it from the Torah given through the prophet Moses, you're teaching something different than the Messiah revealed through God's servant Moses, our teacher. That's something different. No. We need, we absolutely need, if we were to disconsider, to annul the commandments of God, we would declare His righteousness, the righteousness of Messiah, to be invalidated. 
It's absurd. Continuing verse 26 through 29. For you are children of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. For as many of, of you as were immersed into Messiah have put on Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor servant. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. If you are Messiahs, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's, he's, he's finishing this, 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 uh, this thought, reminding them again, you've already got You've already received what you so desperately are looking for. You want to be a part of the people of God? You're already a part of the people of God. You were brought into the people of God. You've been grafted in by faith in Messiah. Between you and a native born, there's no difference. You're fully sons and daughters. This is what the influencers were trying to influence them by saying, listen, if you want to be a part of Israel, you need to go through ritual conversion and become a Jew. That's what they were telling them. Until you can, you're not really a son or daughter. You're not really a part of the family. How sad. How sad that anyone should say, you're not a part of the same family as Israel is part of that family. Because you haven't gone through ritual conversion. This is still borne out. Not that this, I, don't, I don't want you to think that this is a bad prayer, because it's not. It's actually a very good prayer. But uh, found in the art scroll, complete Siddur. This very thing that Paul is talking about is made evident. Page 19 of the Art Scroll Complete Sidur says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who gave the heart understanding distinguished between day and night. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, for not having made me a slave. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, for not having made me a woman. Look, what's Paul saying here? <laughs> Paul is alluding to this, this very concept that these prayers that we've prayed since ancient times, you're, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. Slave nor free, there's all one in Messiah. And, and this, is the, this is actually, if you, if you read the commentary in the art school, this is the gist of this, this prayer. It's actually not saying, it's not, it's not denigrating to those groups. It's actually saying, thank you for making me who you made me. So that I can appropriate and inherit all that you've given me. And this is, this is Paul's point here. You, you've already been made a part. You are not distinct or different from those who pray in the Shemona Esrei. Blessed are you, Lord our God, God of our forefathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the great and mighty God. You're not different. You're the same. You're in the same family. You don't need to add to what has already been done. You are already fully sons. You are already fully daughters. You have been joined to the covenant of the God of Abraham. You have been joined to the covenant people, Israel. You are a part. You are members of the family. You are not on the outside looking in wondering 
how can I get in? Should I go through ritual conversion? Should I take on the yoke of the law? Should I be a Jew and no longer a Gentile? He's saying, you're already there. You've already done it. Or it has been done for you because we could never have done it ourselves. It is by grace and grace alone. What we see in, 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 this, in this chapter 3 as Paul continued to press his main point to the Galatians, his main point as we've seen is you've already received the acceptance into the family of God. You don't need man's approval. You don't need that to be accepted in part of Israel. Certainly there's the pressure. Certainly there are those on the, uh, that, are, that are saying you must. There's no difference today as there was then except in purely Gentile communities who have no clue what this book is talking about. Because they have never experienced the things that those in Messianic Judaism has, have experienced. We, in Messianic Judaism, know full well the message and the, the pressure that the Galatians were under. We understand it. We have experienced it. We know it. Whether we're Jewish or whether we're Gentile, we know it. We know the issues that are being discussed. Because no, and no community in 1900 years has experienced it because the, the church, the Christian church, divorced itself from Judaism, wanted nothing to do with the Jewish people, made Jews into, into Gentile Christians and, for, and told them to forsake their heritage. So for 1900 years, no one has experienced this except for a few scattered throughout the centuries. Now we as a movement understand, we understand this very issue that Paul's bringing up. We understand this issue. We understand that pressure. And Paul's telling us, do not, you do not need man's approval or acceptance to be part of Israel. If you're a Jew, you can say, when someone asks, are you Jewish? You can say, I am Jewish. By God's grace, I am Jewish. By God's grace, I've been, I've been made a part of the covenant community. By God's grace and my faith in Messiah, I have a part in the world to come. If you're Gentile, you can say, I'm not Jewish, but I follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am a disciple of the Jewish Messiah. I am, I live as a Jewish person lives. Messianic Judaism is my faith. But I was born a Gentile and by grace I've been grafted in. You can say it. Unlike the promises, the empty promises of ritual conversion, both in the first century and now, if you just go through circumcision or ritual conversion or taking on the yoke of the law as it's also called, we're not talking about obeying the commandments. That's a separate issue. That God's righteousness stands forever. But if you'll just go through this, this series of steps, if you'll just agree to keep the written and the oral law as man has defined it, those are empty promises. They can't attach you to the root. Only Messiah can attach us all to the root, and that is Israel, his people. The Torah was never given as a means to be a part of the covenant community. Never alludes to it. Uh, Judaism has really never even understood it to be that way. It's alluded to in, in, in its, re its requirements within 
ritual conversion, but it never holds that as a principle, that it was a means to enter the covenant community. You entered the covenant community because you were born in it or you went through ritual conversion, not by keeping the commandments. The, covenant, the Torah was given to reveal the Messiah and his righteousness, and it still leads men to Messiah and righteousness. And those who want to annul it need to take heed to this. Luke 16.31 says, But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses, this is Yeshua speaking, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they pers be persuaded through one, though one rise from the dead. If you think that you can teach the gospel of the resurrection and not teach it on the basis of Moses and the prophets, you're wrong. They will never believe the one rise from the dead if they won't believe Moses and the prophets. You have, you have fakes that will fall away. Seed that will be plucked up by the birds or the thorns and the thistles. John 5, 46-47 But if you believe Moses, Messiah is speaking again, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Do you understand how serious it is for people to talk about, well, that's the law of Moses. We don't follow the law of Moses. What they're doing is they're denigrating, first of all, the words of God. The most oft-repeated phrase in all of Scripture is this phrase. And God spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying. That is the most oft-repeated phrase in all of Scripture. The Torah of Moses is not the Torah by Moses. It is, the, it is the words of the living God spoken through his holy prophet Moses who stands as prophet above prophets and Yeshua as Messiah is a prophet like unto Moses. When you denigrate Moses, you denigrate the very master that you call, uh, that you call Messiah. If Yeshua said, if you don't believe Moses' writings, how will you believe me? There are those who want to distance it. They don't believe Moses. They don't follow Moses. They don't care about Moses. He's got some nice stories in Genesis. But Maya sure gets boring after Exodus chapter 16. May it never be that the people of God could ever distance themselves from Moses. Matthew chapter 5 verse 19. The warning that Yeshua gives is this. Whoever therefore breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And beloved, this is my prayer for you. Whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's close our study with uh, a prayer from, uh, that draws from Exodus chapter 34. We know that the righteousness that we put on a Messiah is sufficient. It is the only thing. It is the only thing that gives us standing before God. We know that our sins are great and many. And they must be dealt with. God is gracious and kind. He is slow to anger. And He forgives iniquity. This is Vidu. This is on page 119 of your art scroll, Complete Siddur. And the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in kindness and truth, 
preserver of kindness for thousands of generations, forgiver of iniquity, willful sin and error, and who, and who cleanses. May you forgive our iniquities and our errors and make us your heritage. Forgive us, our Father, for we have erred. Pardon us, our King, for we have willfully sinned. For you, my Lord, are good and forgiving and abundantly kind to all who call upon you. Amen.